0: What masterpiece are we dissecting? Extreme Coda.
1: There was a moment in the 1980s in Great Britain when horror films became a moral panic like never before. 72 films were banned for being too violent or too upsetting in their content. These became known as the video nasties a uniquely British phenomenon that is the backdrop of Prano-Bailey-Bond's upcoming film, Censor. To combat the possible repercussions of too much horror, somewhere in a dimly lit basement in London, there's a group of people who watch horror film after horror film, trying to find that moment that might just be too much for audiences to handle.
2: There's a a, a sequence in it where
1: a man eats someone's face. Oh yes. Yes, 18. With extensive cuts. There's a huge responsibility placed on them. Let something through and there might be dire consequences. What if a fictional horror inspires a real life one? What if he sees something that is just too much to bear?
3: So they're blaming us. Well, there's the thing. This journalist seemed to know that it was you two who passed the film. How the hell do they know that? I can't believe you two let it get past you. It's complete hysteria. It's no worse than other material we've passed. The press are going to town.
1: One of these censors charged with policing horror films is our protagonist, Enid Baines. And she is the beating heart of Censor. A film so layered with beauty, horror and mystery that it deserves its very own podcast. So we just had to make it. Welcome to Censor This, a mini-series dedicated to dissecting some of the many layers of the film. My name is Anna Bogutskaya, I'm the co-founder of the horror film collective The Final Girls And throughout the next four episodes, I'll be talking to film critics, cinephiles, horror experts, as well as the people who made the film to try to unpick why censor has stuck with me and all of us just so very much. Now, for anyone who's not seen the film yet, you do not need to have seen censor to be able to listen to this podcast. In fact, I hope that some people who haven't seen the film yet might listen to this and be encouraged to seek it out. But please be warned, there is conversation about what happens in the film. But do not worry, in this episode specifically, there is no mention about the ending or any key plot information. In the last episode, we dived deep into the psychology of Enid. And now it's time for us to unpack what exactly were the video nasties and what they meant for horror film culture then and now. To help me with this, I'm joined by the producer and host of the Evolution of Horror podcast, Mike Munzer.
3: I produce the Evolution of Horror podcast, uh, which kind of looks, as the title suggests, it kind of looks at the history and the evolution of of the genre. So similar to the Final Girls podcast, we take different themes, different seasons, different subgenres, and we look at them in depth, and we discuss different movies, but kind of in the context of that subgenre and the way in which it changes based on what's changed in history, I suppose, um, and sort of sort of track the evolution of the genre based on what's what's happening in in the world, I suppose.
1: So really, you're kind of the perfect person to talk about video nasties in the context of horror films <laughs>
3: that's portrayed and censored. Oh, God, no no pressure, Anna. But yeah, <laughs> in, in theory.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the specifically that the context of video nasties that appears and that has generated so much interest uh, especially I think for audiences outside of the UK Um, Mm -hmm. and video nasties and that whole era in the 80s really make up the backdrop of censors so to to start our chat Mike can you can you tell me what a video nasty is for someone who hasn't heard of the term before
3: yeah, so it's, uh, it's essentially um, a, a, a film that was kind of classified in this category. Video nasties was something that, that happened in the early 80s, basically, with the dawn of um, home video, essentially. It was really this, this new, unregulated medium um, that movies were suddenly being put on VHS and released into the world, and they weren't actually going through any kind of process of classification or censorship like uh, cinema releases were so it meant that anybody could make any film they want slap any old gratuitous image on the front cover and sell it in like a local newsagents or convenience store or something and uh, that's what started to happen and suddenly kids and families were, um, you know, witnessing or getting access to all kinds of crazy films that were just there available on shelves Um, and parents were able to buy whatever, uh, you know, adult material they wanted and it meant that it was in the home and therefore there was this sudden worry that kids could access all of these terrifying, obscene movies and it would damage them irrequably and all this and uh, so it, it was this huge kind of moral panic i suppose and it was a, I think a perfect storm of sort of the the beginning of thatcher's britain this very very conservative era in in the uk that was starting to happen in the late 70s and early 80s the birth of this new medium vhs which meant that films were accessible to families and along with that this sudden surge of cheap horror films or exploitation films that were being made because of this new medium to kind of take advantage of it because it meant that they could easily distribute it without it going into cinemas. So all of these things happened around the same sort of time and you know conservative people, people like Mary Whitehouse just lost their minds, absolutely lost their minds and they thought this was the end of civilization as they knew it.
1: And I'll ask you about Mary Whitehouse in a second but Where was horror culture at the time? What was the sort of films that were being made in the 80s that caused so much uproar in Britain at the time that they had to be banned?
3: Well, gory ones, really, I suppose. (laughs) Like, this is, you know, I think for so many horror fans, a kind of golden era of horror as well. And, And that's because we were getting so many interesting actually really artistically made horror movies with incredible practical effects. There was obviously the huge success of movies like Halloween in the late 70s, but also George Romero's Dawn of the Dead and that kind of thing. And in the early 80s, you saw people like Tom Savini and Rick Baker these incredible sort of makeup effects artists and practical effects artists come to the fore. And we were getting this rush of incredible movies, you know, the the upper echelon of which were movies like The Thing, An American Werewolf in London, you know, these movies with incredible kind of body horror and practical effects. And then there were sort of cheaper indie movies as well. You got your run of slashers, the Friday the 13th movies, The Burning, all of that kind of thing. Also had lots of blood and gore effect. Over in Italy, we were getting movies from Lucio Fulci and, you know, Dario Argento, these super gory zombie movies and cannibal movies and that kind of thing. So they were all different. But I would say that the trend of of horror movies, particularly in the early 80s, were they were filled with lots of quite gratuitous but really cool uh, gore and body horror. And that was what really, I think, offended a lot of people.
1: I mean, all of that sounds absolutely delightful to me. So, (laughs) I know, right? These are literally my favorite
3: (laughs) films.
1: (laughs) I know. But can you talk a little bit about kind of what were those? What was the moral panic? Like, what did people think was going to happen if anybody picked up a VHS of The Evil Dead or a Lucio Filci film?
3: I think that people thought that they would I don't know become a serial killer become a cannibal I've got no (laughs) idea it's ridiculous isn't it it doesn't really Mm -hmm. make any sense but there is this and it still exists to this day you know like I remember news articles in the last few years about people blaming movies like or you know um, stories like the slender man on murders right and that kind of thing it still is happening this idea of blaming cinema on crimes that people commit Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that there was this worry that some how young people or impressionable people were going to watch a movie like, I don't know, you know, I Spit on Your Grave, maybe, or something like that. And And want to go out and commit these crimes or do these unspeakable Mm. things to people. So I think they thought that it was in some way going to, you know, damage people's brains or whatever, Mm. Um, which is ridiculous. But, you know, it's always been there, hasn't it? There was the James Bulger murder that was blamed on a Chucky movie, you know, Mm. in in the early 90s. It's it's always been something that's happened throughout history. And and this was a real sort of concentrated era of that.
1: I mean, that blaming any element of pop culture. And it's usually what's considered kind of the lowest brow of pop culture, isn't it? You know, always, people would always. blame comic books in the 1950s for creating immoral behavior, or violence amongst children and, and young people. Then they would blame horror movies. Then they blame video games. Then they totally. blame TV
3: series. And and there's a real element of classism to it mm. as well because it's it's. I think that they there's a you know people like the BBFC or Mary Whitehouse. I think they trust a certain demographic of people to watch these films. But the, I mean, the BBFC chief censor James Furman actually said he said it's all right for middle class cineasts to see films like this. But what would happen if a factory worker in Manchester happened to see it? He's talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre there. Mm. So absolute kind of blatant kind of classism there and prejudice uh, of this idea that there are certain groups of people, you know, that are not ready to see movies like this Mm. or that will be damaged by movies like this, you know. So, yeah, it's it's all a load of rubbish, isn't it?
1: I mean, the times have really changed and the BBFC, the British Board for Film Classification, has really changed. And I actually spoke to Sarah Peacock, who's the BBFC's Education and Compliance Manager, to give me a little bit more information and insight into what was happening at that time and how that's evolved now and what it actually does now. Because I understand that Prano Bailey-Bond, the director of Censor, really went into the archives of the bbfc to really understand how censors operated at the time and what it meant for them to be looking at all these films and picking out which bits to cut and why and how they picked which bits to cut from the films sensor has really created this whole interest uh, around the world well everywhere that people have been able to see it and where it's been released into the work of you know what used to be the censors in the 80s can you talk a little bit about how it's it's different now for, from how it was in that in that time
2: Yeah, so um, it is a bit of a strange experience when we were sort of watching the film and, and rating the film because on the one hand we could relate to sort of the process that Enid and her colleagues were going through in the sense that they were watching a film together, they were... They were typing on typewriters, their notes and stuff, but essentially watching it, writing up reports of some kind, and discussing it, and then coming to a decision. So that process has very much stayed the same since the 1980s. But what is fundamentally quite different is obviously sort of the attitudes towards um, censorship and to um, cutting material. So very much now, I mean, in the 1980s, the BBFC changed its name from the British Board of Film Censor to the British Board of Film Classification. And, you know, we very much feel that it's adults, right? Adults should be free to choose their own entertainment. Um, We're very much here to sort of um, support and empower people, particularly families with younger children, to um, choose content well that suits their family. You know, everyone at the BBFC loves film and cinema, and we want people to have as positive a view and experience as possible. So I think sort of, um, definitely a shift in terms of, um, I mean, there's a line in, in the film in censor mm-hmm. where it says, if in doubt, just cut it. Yeah. And I think that's, <laughs> that's very not what we don't say that anymore at the BBFC. Not, not that <laughs> the BBFC is the regulatory body in censor. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that, that's very not the, um, how it works now.
1: And do you have a sense of kind of what guiding principles motivated the work?
2: Well I think in the film they talk a lot about this idea of harm
1: mm-hmm. and
2: causing harm to the public so the idea of harm is is kind of like fundamental to the BBFC particularly in the context of the video nasties era and I think like this is kind of one of the real sort of shifting Attitudes and sort of shifting areas from the regulatory body that's presented in censor, perhaps mm-hmm. the BBFC today. So, we absolutely have to take into account harm and if a film is likely to cause a credible harm risk to society, to vulnerable viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of outlined in this piece of legislation called the Video Recordings Act that was set up in 1984, kind of in response to the video nasties.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So um, absolutely guiding principle for the BBFC, but I think attitudes towards media effects has definitely shifted since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And um, as I say, while it is a, still an issue that we have to take into account, it's really, really rare for us now to intervene at the adult level, so at 18 on the grounds of harm. If we do do that, it's typically in relation, unfortunately, to depictions of sexual violence on screen or potentially in regards to depictions of uh, discrimination and hate on screen. But as I say, it's, it's really, really
1: rare for us to do that now. You've mentioned her a bunch of times. Can you elaborate a little bit on who Mary Whitehouse was?
3: Yeah, she was. I mean, she's kind of like the boogeyman for horror fans, isn't she? <laughs> Mary Whitehouse. She's this like mythic person, um, essentially. Kind of, I know of her from just reading about this era, watching documentaries about this era. Mm. Um, she was. She was essentially just a sort of a conservative activist, mm. um, wasn't she? And she was really kind of. She became a real public figure around this time um, for basically really going hard on any kind of of sort of counterculture movements or anything that would be in any way kind of boundary pushing or went against very, very conservative Christian norms, I suppose. Mm. Um, She she kind of became the spokesperson for how outrageous and how disgusting, um, you know, whatever it might be, punk music, rock music, horror movies, exploitation movies, anything you like that doesn't kind of... um, that doesn't conform to that kind of Christian conservative norm. Mary Whitehouse was on TV leading some kind of crusade against it most of the time. Mm. She even had a massive problem with Doctor Who in the early 70s, this kids TV show Mm. that she thought was kind of evil and that kind of thing. And really kind of spoke out and wrote a lot about it as well. So... She was the figurehead mm. for this kind of, uh, yeah, this kind of older conservative group that were terrified of movies that were happening at this point and, and really kind of did everything she could to get them pulled and get them banned.
1: Mm. And she even, didn't she um, do some sort of presentation or talk or report in front of the The MPs or the House of Commons where she edited together, maybe not herself personally, but showcase clips from all these horror films from the early 80s to showcase just how depraved they were. (laughs)
3: Yeah. And I love that idea of her showing this like showreel of gory horror from the early eighties. That's amazing.
1: Kind of legendary behavior, I'm not gonna lie. It does seem it does seem quite a fun. You know, here's here's why the evil dead is absolutely um going to turn you into a
3: serial killer. I love it. It's absolutely <laughs> bonkers isn't it it's absolutely bonkers i love it but you know she was really committed mm. that is one thing you can say about her she 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 was very committed
1: and what do you think the video nasties era meant for horror fans for horror film culture
3: well this is what's really interesting and I guess the kind of irony about it in a way is that, you know, there was this list of movies, 72 movies, 39 of which were actually sort of prosecuted movies, right, where it was actually you could you could be charged with a criminal offence for kind of selling these movies and that kind of thing. But what happened was these movies became like the holy grails for horror fans, right? Like all that happened was some of these movies were actually, some of them are classics, some of them weren't even very good. But because they were categorized as these video nasties, it suddenly became like you really wanted to see them. And they were almost elevated to this new, exciting kind of um, echelon of horror. Because of course, I mean, I wasn't around at this time, but even since I've done my best to try and track down a load Mm -hmm. of those movies on that video nasty list because you want to see don't you what what is it that's you know angered people about them you want to see some of these gory shocking moments you know that you read about so yeah i think it actually what it did was in some ways it did the opposite to what they were hoping it didn't it didn't kind of suppress the movies it made them even more enticing Mm. um and i think horror fans You know really kind of obviously wanted to support a lot of the movies on these lists and wanted to seek them out and wanted to get their hands on them
1: so on that note actually in my interview with ruth peace the makeup and hair designer for censor she actually was a teenager during the era of the video nasty so she spoke a little bit about how she watched these films with her friends and what it was like to be a horror fan in the 80s when all of this stuff was happening I mean, all
4: I did was watch horror films and <laughs> I think, you know, that could have been like a real waste of, of time growing up. But actually, it seems to have really paid off. Mm. The, the first one that kind of really stuck with me was Evil Dead. It was one of those things growing up in the UK and the Video Nasty era. Mm mm-hmm. Just that whole experience of being a kid and being told, like, there are all these amazing films, you're going to love them, but you can't see any of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just became like this, this treasure trove. So finally seeing, well, I, I think the first, uh, first cuts I saw of Evil Dead were probably, I, I remember there were so many things that didn't make sense because so much was cut out of it. Mm. But just the whole atmosphere and feeling of that film, I think that was probably the, The one that really made me want to kind of do that as a job and be within that world which is super naive because if you read about the the hell they went through making that (laughs) film like how tough it was and in my mind i was like oh great you know how wonderful they went out to a cabin and they just shot it and they just (laughs) did it that's so great but um yeah yeah absolutely loved that film
1: and did you know um did you know about the video nasty era were you interested in that era before a censor came along
4: yeah it was a huge thing for me I think I mean I'm 39 now but obviously with the UK we had banned films until I think Texas Chainsaw came out in like 1999 or 2000, officially, where you could actually go into a shop and buy it, mm-hmm. um, which seems crazy now. I mean, like The Exorcist and all these films were you just you just couldn't watch them. And uh, growing up, a huge part of um, my social life and my interactions was hanging out with uh, my friends, and we'd all get together and make friends with a market seller who was selling like dodgy rip-off copies of like these terrible VHS and you'd have to kind of befriend them like gain their trust by buying films you didn't want to oh see Oh my God. Just, like <laughs> yeah it's so weird so just just kind of mainstream like thrillers or whatever that you you know you could buy them in the stores but you had to kind of pretend like you wanted to get this deal and after, I don't know, like a few months of going and buying these like terrible VHS that you didn't want of other films Mm -hmm. he would eventually like bring out this folder from underneath the desk from underneath his stall, which was pages and pages of banned horror films and it was like a huge thing, like you'd gotten in there you'd gotten into the underworld of like all of these films that you weren't supposed to see Uh and because you could get legitimately arrested and you know your life ruined for selling films like that so um it was like a, it was a huge thing it was like an undercover operation and then we'd all get together and do I think it was about like 20 or 25 pounds per ripped off video and um which is I guess was a lot that sounds then. like a
1: lot for for the 80s or, or the yeah 90s. and they
4: would like I mean this was kind of I guess like uh like mid 90s uh-huh mid to like yeah around that kind of time um and uh they were terrible copies as well like absolutely like you could barely see anything
1: and i guess i mean there's there's tons of places that have the specific list of these 72 films and they kind of go from little white lies have has a great list ranking all of them it kind of goes from classics like texas chains a massacre to revenge of the boogeyman or gestapo's (laughs) last orgy which oh my god so
3: (laughs) many nazis there's like ss experiment camp and all of that kind of thing yeah it's so funny Yeah. yeah that's it you get the whole spectrum on this list that's for sure
1: totally but it does give you and horror fans both of the time and even now and i actually think it would be really fun for for people who enjoy censor to literally go down that list and seek them out or at least some of them because it's it's like you say, it's really interesting and it's a to-do list to see what was so perverse and off putting by them, what was so obscene about these movies that they had to be banned. And you know, some of them were put on that list of thirty nine films, as you said, that could be that could put you in jail.
3: Yeah. And, you know, it often came down to the artwork, I think, as well, the Mm -hmm. cover art. They often had images on the front that I'm sure that there were so many of these movies that, you know, the BBFC or whoever else didn't even bother to watch before they were were pulled or labelled video nasty, you know. Driller Killer was a really famous one, obviously, because it has that image of the man with Mm -hmm. the drill going into his head on the cover. But yeah, like some of them, yes, some of them are super gory, quite explicit movies. Obviously Cannibal Holocaust is still to this day quite a controversial movie because Mm -hmm. it's got real sort of animal cruelty in it and some other things. But then there are other movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which of course, as we all know famously, barely has any gore, barely has a drop of blood in it. There's nothing really that should lead that film to get banned in any way. Mm. Um, And movies like Possession, which are Mm. these kind of... You know, almost these kind of art house masterpieces, essentially, Absolutely. aren't they, as well? And yeah, it's just, it's such a broad spectrum of movies. Really interesting to work your way down the list and, and see what's on there, you know?
1: And how do you think Censor showcases this time, this particular time? And especially because our protagonist, Enid, is, is a film censor. We first meet her cutting out and making notes about eye-gouging scenes. And, <laughs> you know, the whole film is very much about her, but her job is so much at the heart of who she is as a as a character and the video nasties and this commitment to protecting the public from seeing these films is also such a big part of who she is how do you think kind of censor taps into this era and this fear of the of the horror film
3: yeah, I think Sensor does an incredible job, actually, of 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 putting you in the mindset of one of these sensors, um, of somebody that works at a place like the BBFC who has to sit and watch every single one of these movies right and what that could do to you because we all love these movies but we don't necessarily for our day job have to sit through every single movie like this in a dark room and uh make certain cuts or cut out stuff that's genuinely harmful Mm. and that kind of thing and it's a really interesting kind of study of what that is like i think and of course at this point in time There was this surge of movies like this, like I said earlier, because of this kind of birth of this new medium, because Mm -hmm. of just horror trends, because of the success of movies like Friday the 13th and Halloween that were very cheap and did very well. There was this surge of slasher movies, splatter movies that people were making for cheap and distributing for cheap. So I'm sure at that point there must have been a hell of a lot of you know very gory scuzzy movies that people uh, that worked at censorship boards had to work their way through mm. and there was this kind of i guess this push pull aspect of you know what you know what you yourself think is is acceptable versus what society is pressuring you to deem acceptable and unacceptable. Mm. You know, working as a censor at this point and having people looming over you like Mary Whitehouse and whoever else. And that, that real kind of um, conflict, I suppose, as to, to what you deem to be okay for, for, for giving a, a certificate and, and putting out there into the world, and what you think shouldn't be and everything. And I think all of those questions Sensor kind of really cleverly, subtly sort of explores.
1: In my conversation with Neve Algar, we actually spoke about the sort of research that she did into, into how sensors worked at that time and also kind of some of the motivation behind Enid's dedication to her job.
0: Well, there was um, Carl, who Prano put me in touch with, um, had been a, a film censor around the time that *Censor* is set, and it was just really fascinating to to hear her talk about the films like that I was familiar with, that where it's scenes were like cut out or it's scenes were seen as too explicit because of it wasn't so much the violence, but so much so. um, how women were actually being treated you could tell how people women were being treated in those scenes and how you know this was more of an exploration into the misconduct on set that you could possibly see with with, within a film but also it's just that she said there was so much of it where you just spend just the idea that spending hours and hours and hours watching such explicit contact and I you know it all comes down to this character of how perhaps that would have this effect on someone's psyche or you know for me it was always trying to figure out why someone is doing the things that they do and i just wanted to answer me and prana were kind of began with trying to answer why is it that enid does this specific job in relation to her own life and 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 the answer was that she's trying to protect an audience she's trying to protect the public from seeing something that they shouldn't see perhaps because she's seen something that
1: she shouldn't see so she's almost like absorbing all of these violent imagery and this pain from everyone else to try to protect everyone else from it.
0: Yeah, she's filtering it, and what we, you know, that's that's essentially what she does. She fil- she's filtering reality to make it more tangible for people to to digest.
1: And how do you think it presents the actual? Um, the making of these horror films. So we kind of see three different aspects of horror culture at the time, don't we? We see it from the censor's point of view, from Enid's point of view, where she's thinking to herself that she's protecting the audience from harm
3: mm-hmm. by
1: by removing certain, certain bits of these films. And then we see the video store, which is a really fascinating scene. And then we see <laughs> yeah. the making of a horror film by this this kind of mythical director, Frederick Norris. So what do you make about these other two aspects, the horror culture, the video store culture, and the actual making of a horror film?
3: Well, the video store culture is incredible, isn't it? That mm. That idea that you're buying something that's so... I don't know, it's almost like it's some sort of drug deal or something, Mm -hmm. isn't it? In a way, like the way that they have to go in and and buy this kind of behind the counter stuff and keep it really subtle. Again, it's it's so crazy and it's so ridiculous now in 2021 to look back on that and think that's what you had to do in order to get hold of a copy of, (laughs) you know, uh, zombie flesh eaters, Lucio Fulci's zombie or something. (laughs) You know, it's like it's it's hilarious that this is what you had to do. But it's a really brilliant little snapshot. It's a really interesting insight. The kind of illicitness. There's a sort of sleaziness about it as well. But there's also something kind of really exciting about it at the same time. Again, they kind of it. It's it's giving that Im- impression that these video nasties were sort of mythic in some way. That they, you know, that they were something that really kind of special that you needed to seek out in certain places and that kind of thing. So again, with these kind of very subtle scenes the film kind of really gets across that vibe i think of what it was like i'm sure at the time to try and seek out and try and buy or rent these movies that you weren't allowed to and i think the thing that sensor does really cleverly in the final act like you say the way that it kind of shows you the side of making the movie is that it shows it through a really queasy and quite disturbing lens right and i think it does this very clever thing of in some ways it's quite balanced because Is it suggesting that there were genuinely dangerous things that went into making films? Like, were people genuinely harmed? And you get the feeling in that final act of the movie when she's actually on set and she's working with some of these scary people in the woods that oh maybe these movies were genuinely harmful but then of course we are seeing all of this through the perspective of a censor who has these particular points of view in these particular experiences so I think it re- does a really good job of putting you in the mind of what it's like to to be put through all those movies as a censor and it gives you it through this like very particular lens it gives you a look at just how dangerous it might be to watch these movies as a censor just how scary uh slash potentially dangerous it was to work in a video store and distribute them and just how potentially harmful and dangerous especially for young women it could have been to actually make these movies and be on the set of these movies right so um i think it gives you a really nuanced and interesting take on all the different sides of it
1: i mean there's one of the things i love about the video store scene is the sense of fear from the shop owner the fact that he's, you know, either going to be prosecuted by this woman who's approaching him to ask for this banned film, but also kind of almost sweating, thinking that is she an undercover censor? Is that a thing? Or is she a real fan and she wants to, she actually wants to see this movie for whatever reason? You know, there's this real sense of um illicitness, like you say, almost mm-hmm. like a drug deal. And mm-hmm. I was wondering kind of, how do you think the 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 legacy of video nasties has been and kind of how Mm. is it presented through censor which obviously is made through a modern less and through someone a a filmmaker who loves and knows horror really well but is looking at a very such a particular point in time
3: yeah i guess it's a very political lens isn't Mm. it i mean emphasizing that feeling of britain um, a kind of a country that's in some ways known for its sort of freedoms and, you know, prides itself on that kind of thing. You know, almost being portrayed as, you know, I don't know, like, like it's some sort of dictatorship or totalitarian society in some mm. way. And it's it's not that extreme, obviously, but that idea that, yeah, this man who is just selling a film just a Mm. fictional film that somebody has made is sweating and panicking to the thought of being prosecuted or going to prison or being caught by Mm. an undercover cop or you know um being being basically detected as like what could be considered an enemy of the state right Mm. by selling a horror film is both ridiculous and it's nonsense but it's also terrifying it's a terrifying prospect and the fact that that was even if censor is exaggerating that somewhat mm. even but you know the fact that that was there that feeling in the culture and in the country at this point that this is really genuinely something that you could go to prison for is it's terrifying isn't it it's a it's a terrifying look I suppose at Thatcher's Britain at mm. what? what it was like back then in order to make a film or distribute a film or just watch a film.
1: And finally, Mike, is there anything we haven't talked about video nasties and that era that you really wanted to bring up?
3: It's it's just such a fascinating little era. And like we've said, it's such a fascinating list of movies, Mm -hmm. isn't it? From movies where, you know, like I said, in some ways you can understand the outrage and the censorship to a point you know there are movies like cannibal holocaust which i still find incredibly troubling to watch to this day in Mm. a way and i'm still having a conversation with people on my podcast as to well should they have actually released that movie without the animal cruelty but then, you know, should we watch it in the way that we're supposed to watch it and, and look at it through an objective lens, you know, and this kind of thing? There are still conversations being had about some of these movies and then others, you know, the the ridiculousness of it, Texas Chainsaw Possession and some of these others where these are just brilliant horror films that don't have anything about them that is exploitative mm. that are, you know, categorised and, and lumped uh, in the same list. I think it's a, it's a fascinating little era and it's one that we're never going to forget and i think it's it's i think it's going to forever probably influence uh how we as a culture kind of see movies and censorship as well and i think it's you know i i spoke to prano myself and i'm sure you've probably had a conversation with her about this about how she finds movies like this and i remember her telling me a story about how a serbian film mm-hmm. you know made her you know disturbed her to the point where she said should I have watched this should this still you know should this be allowed almost Mm. and I think that you know more than anything this video nasty era is such a great way of sparking these kind of conversations isn't Mm. it about what should be allowed what should be available for audiences how far is too far I suppose Mm. and uh and I think I think this little list is a great kind of spectrum there and a great way to kind of spark those discussions
1: finally Mike for anyone who's coming out of censor and wants to explore the video nasty world a bit more, are there a couple of films that you would recommend for people who maybe were not aware of the video nasty era before, the films that are on that list, that, that you'd say, check these out so you can get a, a flavour for what it meant to be a banned film in 1980s Britain?
3: So many, aren't there? And like, I, I'm, you know, that some of them I've, I've probably seen the ones that a lot of people have heard of. But I would say definitely, if you haven't seen them, check out some of the kind of Italian ones, Uh, A Bay of Blood, Twitch of the Death (laughs) Nerve by Mario Barber. That's quite an early film. That was Mm. early 70s. But that was on the list. And that's a great, especially if you're interested in the early 80s slasher movies, it's a great kind of proto slasher film. If you think you've got the stomach for it, check out Cannibal Holocaust because it's still shocking. It's still inc- incredibly well made because it looks like you're watching something you shouldn't be, right? Mm. Um, and I think in terms of just the most fun one on the list, Lucio Fulci's Zombie Flesh Eaters. <laughs> I mean, you can't go wrong with that, Anna. There's a There's a zombie versus a shark. I mean, what, what more could you possibly want from a movie? Uh, it's one of the greatest movies ever made, as is, of course, Evil Dead possession texas chainsaw massacre and all those absolute stone cold classics that are on that list as well
1: absolutely that's a that's a great place to start with mike thank you so much for your time and where can people find more of your work online
3: thank you so much yeah um so they can find my podcast uh, the evolution of horror at all the normal places where you find your podcasts and you can find us on twitter at evolution pod
1: thank you for listening this podcast has been produced by the final girls with the support of vertical releasing it's been edited by olivia graham with music by emily levinist farouche used with permission sensor is out in uk cinemas on the 20th of august so do seek it out